Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined as usual by David Coombs and Will McIntosh-White, Fund Managers for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning, gents. Good morning. 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 On this month's episode, we're going to start by talking about the pretty broad topic of market concentration and see where that takes us. Then we're going to be discussing the defence sector, uh, which has been drawing a lot more attention recently because of the more stressed political uh, environment we find ourselves in at the moment. And then finally, we're going to talk about e-commerce business Shopify, which has been holding in the funds for a good few years now. As usual though, before we get started, here are the usual do's and don'ts. This podcast is intended for retail and professional investors. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets held must be taken in the context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect any investment recommendation. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. Right, so market concentration has been in the news and grown in focus a lot over the last couple of years, you know, across investors, commentators, strategists, anyone with a pen, paper, email address, or a voice, it sounds like. But the race to come up with the next inane, ridiculous acronym or pithy phraseology to group a bunch together has really, has really hot up. It's gone into overdrive, frankly. The Magnificent Seven was the buzz phrase of last year, or for those that are less familiar with who those companies are, Apple, NVIDIA. Uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, Meta, and Alphabet. But those seven stocks last year made up a huge amount of US equity returns. And those who found themselves without exposure probably had a rather difficult year uh, versus those equity indices. Um, All of this concentration, though, it does present plenty of risk, but there's opportunity in there too. So, Will, why don't we start by talking through some of the concentration how we see the risks and opportunities for us to be wary of and, and to exploit, frankly. So I think this is historically come maybe from the US market. That tends to be where the big focus is because you've had these big behemoth tech businesses which have become trillion-dollar businesses um, and they've grown significant. This is the thing. So their performance has been so strong, particularly last year. 2022 wasn't a very good year for them. It wasn't a very good year for much. And so I mean, had a fantastic performance in 2023. They have an outsized impact on headline returns. So when you look at the S&P and how much of the return they've contributed to that, it's been often a huge amount over a few years. And so if you're an active US equity manager and you're underweight these names, you're underperforming, essentially. And if you're overweight these names, you have to have a significant amount in them. Can you even get overweight in some of the names? That's oh, the yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, you look at the US and, as I say, those names have once again, just year to date, carried on this trend. And that's been remarkable to see. You know, you look at NVIDIA. We were looking at NVIDIA this morning. It's up 40% year to date. Um, which After is how much last year? Yeah, I think I've got the number written down somewhere. Odd it? something. It's not alone. You know, Microsoft's done 10%. Amazon's done 12%. Meta's done 32%. Not one we own. Uh, we do own, do own the others. And so, you know, once again, they're driving that market up. The US market's up 4 or 5%, I think, this year. And once again, those big tech names are the reason behind a large part of that. Not completely. You know, the market rally that we've seen over the last, what, four or five months now has broadened out a bit. Mm. But it's interesting to see that once again, 2024, we're being led by this tech market. I think just moving outside of that, what is interesting is it's not just a US phenomena, this concentration. You know, everyone points these big names because, of course, as part of a global index, because they're big trillion-dollar businesses, they contribute so much to the global indices. But if you drill down, you look at the Euro stocks, the top five are worth a third of that index. 
You look at the FTSE 100, the top five, what, over 30% of that index. Mm. So you've got a similar issue. The difference, of course, particularly in the UK, is those top five names are not necessarily doing particularly well. So they're not necessarily making a particularly outsized contribution to the headline return. I mean, that's a really important point, actually. For, I mean, we don't have a strategic asset allocation overlay geographically for equities. And in a way, there's, there's your reason right there, right? Because mm. you might say, well... Why you underweight the UK? Well, actually, you're you, you almost underweight five names, aren't you? <laughs> Which you may not like, and therefore you're underweight the whole country. And I bet those top five, top of my head, they're probably like Shell. Shell's probably one of them, isn't Shell, it? Glaxo, Astra. These are global co the companies. They they don't really bear any reflection of the UK economy whatsoever. To be fair, mm. so it does make you. Uh, well, we would say this, wouldn't we? Because we don't allocate geographically. But I think just that point, which just suddenly struck me as you were mentioning that, it just reiterates the point, actually, that all this chat we hear about, oh, the UK's really cheap. Well, no, it isn't really, um, in actual fact. Those five companies maybe, but you may not like them. And I think going back to the States, there's a lot of companies outside the Magnificent Seven that are also quite well-valued, or I wouldn't say they're cheap necessarily, but they have been left behind, no doubt, although I think there's some stocks in the portfolio we held, like Adobe, Shopify, which we'll talk about later, and I think there was one Cadence. other. Cadence. Yeah. You know, they outperformed to the Magnificent Seven last year. So yeah. even, so actually, the Magnificent Seven, in a way, is a myth. Yeah. Well, I mean, Shopify, I got it here, 124% last year, Cadence 70%, Adobe 77%. I mean, that's better than... I think, you know, Apple, at I least think. half of that Magnificent yes. Seven, again, I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but that is pretty strong. So where'd, what do we conclude with that? So the Magnificent Seven actually is complete nonsense. Well, we kind of knew that anyway, but now we can prove it. And we've had fangs before that. And at one time we had the bricks. I think it started with the bricks, didn't it? And that ended well. Well, yeah. Well, there was it the nifty? Was it nifty fifty? Was the first? Yeah, but that was an acronym. That was slightly. It's, it's just my pithy phraseology, perhaps. Mm. I don't know. It falls but into it's that not bracket. an acronym. So I'm, I'm not going to I'm not allowing that's right. you that. Uh, but even magnificent seven, it's a pithy phrase. So you know. Fair point. Uh, but they're now trying to distill the magnificent seven seven down to the Fab Four, which are the ones that are doing well this well, year. That's what so. they do with fangs, isn't it? <laughs> fangs moved to MAGA, I think. And then was it Donald Trump stole that? And then was it bat fangs for a little while? Again, it's just. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I personally like Craig's, which I'm going to give you credit for this, Thank which is will. the after rates. Because if you look at those, the Mag Seven, you throw in Eli Lilly, which has caused being the other darling stock of the US yeah. because of their anti-obesity or diabetes drugs, and then talk about what about the rest? And I think it's a fair point because those stocks, Magnificent Seven and Eli Lilly, are on significant premium valuations. Now, I think you can argue rightly so when you look at the growth rates sort of running through the EBITDA growth last year of Magnificent Seven. E EBITDA being? So uh, let's just call it earnings to simplify, but essentially earnings growth. Thank you very much. And the vast majority were double digits, so more than 20% actually. And in some cases, something like an NVIDIA, I think about over 300% yeah. earnings growth. So you can argue that, yes, okay, their average valuation is higher than the rest of the market. But when you look at those growth rates, and they have been achieving these high teens, sometimes 20% growth mm. rates, year on year, mostly. I mean, obviously, there's been some fluctuation, but it's been pretty consistent. And so one can argue, right, you say you should be paying up for those businesses that have big moats and that sort of flywheel effect people have talked before, where the bigger you get, it actually ends up increasing your growth rate, actually, yeah. because you sort of draw more people into your ecosystem, essentially, and then you can sell them more. Well, you become dominant in your in your sector, effectively. That's what happens, right? You get more capital, more customers, more revenue, and that means you can keep keep reinvesting your business. You can keep evolving with 
you leave your competitors behind. Yeah. When I mean, you think about Google and Yahoo, for example, you can think of lots of cases where the winners suddenly the dominant player comes through and everybody else just falls away. And that's really what we're talking about here. And you look at NVIDIA, they dominate, you know, the sector that they're in. Alphabet clearly has won the search ending race, right? I mean, ask Jeeves, <laughs> anyone remember that? You know, <laughs> so, you well, know. it's the old, the old thing of uh, the, top the top search for term on Bing is Google. Yeah. Um, that, that always reminds me of how dominant Google actually well, are. In whenever I go into Safari, the first thing I put is Google, right? Exactly. I mean, so, I mean, I think the thing concept is a nonsense. And the market always looks for these kind of collections. It's great. It, it, it's great bylines for, for news stories. It's marketing though, right? It's, it's totally it's marketing, marketing guff, frankly. It's complete <laughs> nonsense. The problem is though in this, I think there is a, a really important point here though in terms of the rise of passive. And I know regular listeners to this podcast will know I'm not a big fan of passive for all sorts of different reasons. But I, I do think this accentuates this to a certain extent because the big get bigger and then these companies become even bigger in their own sector passive portfolios. They just keep, this, this, the big just keep attracting the money all the Ultimate time. Ultimate momentum trade. It is. And that's why you got to be really, that's why we trim these so regularly because the, the danger is you run these for, for all, until eventually mm. it stops and then you get into bubble territory, right? I mean, ultimately, that's where this ends up. If you're not yeah. careful, now you're right. Fortunately, the the growth in the earnings of these companies. I mean, the video we bought 168 dollars. That's when we first bought it. Today. It's gone to 700. But I think the valuation is pretty much the same as when we bought it. I think it's cheaper. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, earnings well, have moved that far that, that it's that it's uh, be be become uh, cheaper. And that's the important point, right? Valuation is only a limited. Mm measure on which to look mm. at when you buy and sell a stock. I mean, we bought NVIDIA for sustainable funds, what, more middle recently, yeah. when you got approval from Green Bank middle of last year, and it's gone up 50% already. And we were like, this is quite expensive. Yeah. And as you say, it's gone up 50% and it's cheaper than when we bought it. And that's quite a difficult kind of concept for some people to understand, but I think. The importance of that discipline, though, comes through, particularly when you're talking about those stocks that are on more stretched valuations or spicy, going back to our old way of categorizing valuation. Because when stocks are priced that way, it doesn't take much to see quite an outsized move. And we saw that only a couple of weeks or so ago, so ago with Alphabet. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the other um, stocks in the Magnificent Seven, you know, they reported good numbers, pushed ahead. Alphabet, only really a slight miss, a slight fly in the ointment, and they're off six or seven percent on the day. And it and that talks to how important it is to have that discipline actually around how you trade these things, trimming into strength, making sure you're not overexposed, because those outsized reactions are always more susceptible to happen when you're at those yeah. valuations. You, lo you lose your margin of safety, absolutely. Don't you? And these things have to, and quite often. They beat, but they don't raise. So mm. they beat earnings, but they don't raise guidance. Yeah. And that's enough for the stock to be, to be down. Right. But this is where the governance piece comes in again. I mean, sorry to bring it back to boring issues, but you know, that's why we don't own Meta and Tesla, right? Yes, the share prices often do spike and double sometimes in quite short measure. The trouble is you're never quite sure what the, the CEOs, you know, Zuckerberg and, and Musk are going to do next. And that's the danger with those stocks in particular. It's a great ride on the way up, but they do have a habit of suddenly saying yeah. something that knocks 20% of the share price overnight. Tesla's down 25% year to date. Is that right? Well, it goes back to the, in a way, again, it's an old rule of thumb, right? But I'd rather the CEOs of our companies be in the middle pages of the paper than the front page. Um, you know, you'd rather be in the business section for the right reasons. And that's the problem when you invest in some of these companies that have those more 
outlandish management teams, shall we call them? Uh, you know, I mean, they're excited. I mean, flamboyant. 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 Yeah, that's outlandish is probably the lawyer. The lawyers are probably <laughs> really bringing up. I would say, you know, flamboyant. You now. Thank yeah. you for saving me there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I yes, for the benefit of the tape, the flamboyant leadership may be slightly eccentric. I think we can get with, get away with that. But actually, I think the fact that, like a lot of these. You know, these entrepreneurs, they have a brilliant idea and they start to believe their own cooking, right? And they, they're infallible mm. and, they're, and they're all in on to the next and they, and, they, and they start to lose focus on the core business. And Musk is a classic there, right? Going into Twitter, yeah, uh, for buying a business that frankly wasn't really a business in my view in any case and throwing a lot of money at it mm. and then pretty much destroying the brand. And they call him a genius. I don't think that's business genius, personally. And he's also sort of half-threatening to walk away and start up a separate AI business unless he gets full control over Tesla because I think well, he's moving to Texas, isn't he, from Delaware? Oh, yeah, so he can get more pay. Yeah, because they, they shut down his pay award from a couple of years ago that was Let's not go too deep into, into no, this area. Again, let's keep ourselves out <laughs> in the courtroom. All of which shows that Tesla for us is the, it, that governance issue. You know, it, it's what, and, and the share price could double in the next three months. Um, yeah, it's sad if we're not in there, but ultimately it, we just don't feel it's a, it's a safe kind of place for us to put our capital. I think on. that's right. I think, I think ultimately, you know, as you say, part of those names, we don't want them. And yeah, they might be brilliant, but it's just a risk we're not willing to bear yeah. because the day it blows up, we'll say, well, we knew that. Why did we get into that stock? And the point really is, is away from those Magnificent Seven, there are huge amounts of opportunities. Yeah. And we quite often get asked, oh, you got 60 to 70 stocks, you know, aren't you over-diversified, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got a global universe. You're really telling me you can't find 60 brilliant stocks in the world that you want to own. I can own, there are more, plenty yeah, more, yeah, you know, that, yeah, yeah. that I want to own. Sometimes price them quite there, et cetera. But for me, that sort of old thing of, oh, you, 25 stocks, you get diversification and that's enough. I've, I've got no interest in that. And the volatility in markets as well, the, the way that you can have one stock, and if that's 3%, 4% of your portfolio, in the world we live in as well, which is running a multi-asset that, that also depends on your time horizon, right? So yeah. And, and you've got to get it right. So if you, yeah. yes, 25, probably mathematically that's true, but Ooh. you've got to get them right, and you've got to be willing to hold them for 10 years and not worry about the volatility. You know, most of us don't have that luxury. And the reality is, if you, if you think about that as well, you go back to late 90s, you would never have known that Amazon and Alphabet were going to be the behemoths of the next decade because they they were tiny companies. So they wouldn't have been in your 25. So no, actually, I even question that's, that works. in re It sounds great in a textbook, but is it in the real world, really? No. Well, we shall see. feels like a good point to move on. And, and, uh, and, and talking of lawyers, by the way, any ETF providers out there would like to coin the after eight ETF, please do get in touch with my lawyers. <laughs> um, so we'll move on to the second uh, subject now. So sadly, the geopolitical environment has deteriorated in the last couple of years with the war in Ukraine and then some escalating tensions, obviously, over the last six months or so um, in, in the Middle East. And there's been a lot of coverage in the UK and comments from senior people in the military uh, and armed forces sharing concerns about things like troop numbers, how hard it's been to recruit new troops. So looking across this landscape at the moment, you can see why defence companies uh, are starting to attract more attention, you know, thinking of that that latter point, you know, maybe the potential solution for personnel issues is a bit more tech-led and a lot of that tech is likely to come out of the defence sector giants within each particular region. So, you know, in recent weeks we've added to US defence company Lockheed Martin, we've added a European peer in, in, in Talis. So, I mean, look, David, I'll, I'll pass over to you to start us on this one, but defence sector broadly, where are we sort of seeing the, the, the need for that in the portfolio? Yeah, so 
obviously quite a controversial area, so thank you for opening up with me on this one. Um, <laughs> so, look, obviously we're not talking about the sustainable funds, first of all. So when we first, let's go, go back to when we first bought Lockheed Martin. We, we bought Lockheed Martin back in 2016, I think it was, when um, Donald Trump was lagging behind Hillary Clinton, uh, remember those days, um, <laughs> in the US elections. And we were just trying to think about what would, should we do if Trump were to win? In the, in the unlikely event he were to win, what would we do? <laughs> Little did we know. And we thought he'd made a lot of, we'd, we'd looked into a lot of his kind of campaign speeches because someone has to. And, you know, what was very clear that one of the bees in his bonnet, so to speak, was that the European governments and other West NATO members had not put enough money into the pot effectively and hadn't spent enough on defense and relied on the US. I think the US spends something like three and a half, four percent of GDP on defense or gross domestic product. And the European, many of the Europeans struggle to get up to the two percent that NATO membership is meant to attract. In fact, I think even one percent in some cases is probably not being reached and if you're an american citizen you kind of yeah why should we police the world for you guys it, there was a logic to that so some things trump says are quite logical i know it's a shocker but there you go <laughs> um you heard it here first i feel like we should have a trigger warning on this episode trump did something positive <laughs> and of course the man may be back and we're not going to talk about the election today we, we covered that last podcast so go back and listen to that so he's coming back and he will have that same view there's no doubt about it but i think now it's even a bigger issue in some respects it's not just about trump yes he will do that also i think a lot of european leaders would worry about a trump presidency of being more insular although biden's been pretty insular to be fair but trump even more insular and again i think european governments were pretty complacent for many many years and that the russian gas pipelines for example i mean trump again right was mm. having a go at germany no no you you're an idiot they were taking the mickey out of him on the front pages hmm trump was right trigger warning number two obviously with the war in ukraine that was the game changer european countries neighboring countries much more nervous are they going to rely on trump they're probably not i mean you have seen an increase in defence spend starting to come out of the European nations. So that's destocking, uh, restocking, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so it's restocking. And obviously some of it is the plan for the next five or so years. Now, of course, any kind of decrease in tensions, and I guess the risk is to this, is that actually people look at budgets, which we know government budgets are stretched. Yeah. And if you start to see an easing in global tensions then actually maybe to say, well, maybe the first place we need to go is, is cutting that. So actually having a Trump minister in place who, who keeps the pressure on from that perspective yeah. is, going to be, is going to be pretty positive for those names. And interesting with Trump, I don't want to talk about him all podcast, um, <laughs> but you know, obviously he ends up having one of the more peaceful administrations. Yeah, I don't think he went into any new wars, but... <laughs> What he didn't do is cut defence budgets. He used the opportunity of not actually spending on live wars, as it were, to still boost US defence budgets. And the world has, nothing has changed from that perspective, right? We're back to North Korea, making more noise mm. on that side. The China-Taiwan thing is ongoing. Yeah. See all sorts of strategists saying it's, it's just eventually going to happen. I mean, who knows, quite frankly. And there are new frontiers of this, this conflict as well around cyber, which... You know, you think again. Some of these defense manufacturers are probably going to be the place. You know, I know they're 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 known for building tanks and missiles and aircraft, 
But there will be departments within there looking specifically at this new frontier of, of warfare that happens, you know, on computer screens and in in, in binary codes and all that kind of well, thing. Well, Talis in particular has uh, made an acquisition in the cybersecurity space and it's becoming a, a, a much bigger part of division. It's about, tw- I think it's around 20%, don't quote me, but it, it's certainly growing. And, and I think that's quite interesting. I think there's a couple of other factors I just want to mention though as well. It is noticeable to me in the last month or so, the amount of generals, not just in the UK and, and admirals across Europe, readying the public for Hayek. So go back to your point on the spending. Mm. I think there's a lot of rhetoric. Oh, conscription, right? No army general wants conscription. I can tell you that because they don't want lots of amateurs running around with guns, right? What they do want is more professional army uh, soldiers. We haven't got enough people to, to, to man the boats, right, in the Navy at the moment. So this is about regging the, the public to expect to see more expenditure on defence. That's all part of this rhetoric. And it's all about, so I think you are going to see, I, I take your point on the cyclicality to a certain extent. I think we're into a different area. I, I agree. I, agree. And I think the other point, this also plays into the protectionist and pulling back from globalisation theme, right? Because... One thing I, I guess I did, we did know this. We bought Lockheed Martin because we thought the US tends to buy defense kit from US companies, but actually that's the same across the world. European uh, countries tend to, to, um, procure their equipment from European defense companies. Mm. Hence why we bought Thales because the French government really only buys from French manufacturers. And there's a number of reasons for that, not just from a security point of view, which is obviously important, but also, it provides jobs, and these are high-tech jobs, actually. Mm. And the spin-offs, what you, we forget is, and one of the reasons the US spends so much on defense is the amount of spin-offs into uh, civil, whether it's aviation or other parts of the economy, from the technological improvements you get. If you think about it, you go back to the world wars. Actually, during wars, often you can see a step change in technology into the wider world because of that need to, to be ahead of the competition. There's a view that more expenditure on defense and making sure you're at the cutting edge of that technology and taking away out of the private, you know, the fact that Musk controlled the satellites over Ukraine. I think that's, again, something that governments are going to want to address, right? So I think this is all playing into that that longer-term theme of governments wanting to spend more money because it's good for their own growth, right? Because you're, you're employing highly skilled people in your own country with with te- technological spin-offs in your own country, mm. providing smaller companies with uh, the, you know suppliers into these defense companies, so it's actually a growth. It, it, it increases growth in in your country as well. So I think there's a number of reasons why defense stocks look quite interesting. I mean, Thales has a has a civil arm as well, mm. which benefits from that technological improvement, and also I think the cybersecurity. They've clearly seen that as a major growth area for obvious reasons. So, you know, I think there's a number of catalysts here for us to increase defense. And this is not a one year, two year strategy. I think this is, we're into a, a new decade mm. of the way governments think about defense. That peace dividend that we've talked about since the Berlin Wall came down clearly has come to an end, right? And we're not going to embrace Putin within two years and be friend of the West again. So I think this is a long term. I I suspect Talis won't be the only name we add over the next few years.
Let's turn our attention to our final topic then, uh, which is very different from defense. Uh, so Shopify, e-commerce business that we have, as I mentioned earlier, held for a few years across portfolios. The stock was hit in 2022 quite hard because higher rates impacted some of these names like Shopify that fall into those growthier baskets of stocks. Um, but the last month has seen, uh, last 12 months rather, has seen a really, really strong recovery. But Will, why don't you start by going right back to the beginning though and you know touch on what Shopify actually do for any listeners who are perhaps less familiar with the name? Yeah, okay. So- so as you say, it's e-commerce platform, what is it essentially trying to do? It's essentially trying to give, if you're starting a business, all the tools you need to start and scale and market your business online. And they're actually moving to omni-channel, which means that they're going actually in-store as well. But the vast majority of the business is e-commerce and providing that sort of internet infrastructure for your business, if you like. And so what does that involve? Well, you know, Dave, if you start a business, you firstly need to build a website. And yes. so you can build a website. You don't have to have any coding experience. So I think we'd all be all right on that front. <laughs> you know, as a natural coders, Craig, you might have a little bit of that Absolutely in your locker. They <laughs> um, can convert that into different languages, of course, um, and help you go international, which of course from all sorts of barriers around that. Otherwise, you can have age verification on your website and things like that. It provides payment processing. So people might have come across ShopPay. Shopify, one of those names, we're saying that once you hear it, if you've never heard it before, you start noticing it everywhere. Yeah. That, you know, next time you go and check out somewhere, I bet you'll see a ShopPay, you'll see Powered by Spotify. Um, uh, Shopify, not Spotify. That's very different. You might notice that around as well. <laughs> <laughs> they are not links. That's just very clear. Um, and yeah, it also provides sort of back office elements as well. So helping you manage your inventory it can help with the shipping side as well. Um, and it can even go and provide you with capital for growth. And so why do we like this? Well, I think you've got I mean, e-commerce, clearly very big tailwind. Again, Shopify are a big leader in this space and a big rival really to Amazon. Um, but what they allow you to do as retailer is to retain control of the whole ecosystem and control your own customer. And brand. And brand. So yeah, don't give away your data. Dare I say there's a risk of imitation if your product starts selling very well. Certainly we've seen some complaints around that before. I'm not going to name names of any businesses um, around that, just to be clear. But if you are a business and you are currently selling into Amazon, so if, you, if you're a customer and you buy from Amazon, Often you're buying from a third-party retailer, yes. some of which are a bit dubious. I've sent stuff back before, but you you don't know who that retailer is. There's no brand, yeah. so it's quite difficult. Whereas what Shopify allows you to do is to retain your brand. The customer knows who they're dealing with. If you're using your artisan cheese shop in the Cotswolds, you know who you're dealing with. And actually, if you want to, you can ring the shop up. You feel closer to the to, and the and the mm. cost, you are closer to the business. The business is closer to you. You're not worried that Amazon are going to muscle in and take the business off you. Mm. So it's a it's a really attractive proposition for kind of small to medium-sized retailers in particular. And it's that kind of ecosystem, kind of touching on something we spoke about right at the start. So it's ecosystem, waterfront coverage, where if you are a small business, piecing all of that stuff together yourself with different providers, that's going to be an inordinate amount of time and stress and cost. And the whole point of Shopify is you have a great idea, great product, or you you can address a niche where you think there's a sellable product or service. You get on shaping that, we'll take care of the rest. Well, and I think that's why it's been so attractive. If you're a small business and you've got your own website and you, you know every time you update it, you've got to get some engineering to code it and it's costing you thousands, you've got a six-month waiting list. Yeah. Shopify is plug and play, right? It, you, 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 they do it all for you. You don't have those engineers come around to you. You may employ them yourself. That's expensive. Most don't. As you say, you usually 
you have to outsource it. Here, it's all done for you. It's so slick. And actually, if you use it as a customer, you won't even know it's Shopify. You're on your, mm. your cheese shop website and it'll say powered by Shopify sometimes yeah. as well. So look out for that. Also, Shopify retains the customer details. So often when you go and pay, it's already got your name and address and verification with the, with the customer. So it's even easier for the customer to do <laughs> yeah. business with. So it helps the business and the customer, which it, it's incredibly yeah. powerful. I think that point's really important as well. So reading a stat said nearly 30% of people end up sacking off their purchase at that purchase point yeah. because you go back and you're like, I've got to put all my details in again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a real painful process. You've got to put in all your address. Yeah. And if you have that shop pay and are announced of 2 million people who signed up shop pay, so as you say, change the details. And of course, you've bought on a website over here, nothing to do with your other website, but because yeah. of shop pay, it just transfers that yes. across seamlessly. Um, and it makes that sort of almost a one-click purchase, which is much more inclined and, to and make. I think the other thing as well, like kind of slightly to build on that point, you know, if you're a small business and you're competing with some of the big guys out there and you're trying to find your your niche, right? When you win some attention for your website, when you get a customer to actually go on your website, look at your product, the last thing you want is a website that falls over, that yeah. goes down, yeah. the payment doesn't go through, the the the, the shipping part, the fulfillment, does, all of that kind of stuff. Any of the, any sort of issues and bumps in the road along there, they'll just go back to one of the big well, boys and you just can't afford that. It's equivalent, it's equivalent walking into a shop and saying, have you got this jumper out the back? And the, and the, and the, the, the shop says, can't be asked. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> Shopify can be, it just does all that. Yeah. Because if you go into a website and you get the equivalent of can't be asked, right? You never go back to that website again. Exactly. That's the point. Lost and shop, Shopify means you're, you're dealing with the very slick operation. Now, we ought to talk about the misstep. I was going to say, yeah, yeah we, been, we have been on a journey with this one. And, yeah. you know, I think, look, whenever you get a management company, you know, or, or you, you buy a company, you look at management, you trust management. It doesn't mean management is infallible, I think it's fair to say. And look, you know, we bought Shopify for the first time. We felt they were going through a bit of inflection um, in their business, in their cash flow. They were going to become profitable. They were at that point attracted us. And then you could argue management made a misstep or so, some, certainly something took us the market by surprise by buying a, this kind of logistics fulfillment part of their business, which all of a sudden took them out of a kind of software asset light business into something entirely different that had its own challenges and was potentially going to soak up a lot of capital to deliver on that. And as I said, at the time we were pretty surprised. Market was surprised. The stock price reacted quite, very what, negatively. What was it on down? Sixty percent? Maybe to trial. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, yeah, was, it was a really handsome. big negative reaction. But the good story at the end of this is that management clearly have sort of seen that perhaps that was a misstep. And it's the old thing of if you're going to fail, fail fast, right? And and notice you've made an error, move away from it. Yes, there's some sunk cost, but there's nothing worse than sunk cost fallacy, right? Of kind of keep plowing money in to keep making, you know, try and make it work, cut your losses, move on. And they seem to have done that, which I think we've all found quite heartening, you know, when we're looking out now over the next five, 10 years of Shopify's well, life. Yeah, I mean, the share price has recovered well, no, not all of it, but most not of it. All of that, but that is, of course, the other point to mention around these. You know, we talked about these tech names being very strong in terms of that return profile and growing earnings, which they've done. But it's definitely on the spicier end of the uh, valuation <laughs> metric. Yeah. I mean, we did add when it fell. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. We, we, I mean, that's yeah. our process, right? If we don't, we're not going to add. We had to sell the entire position. So we, we did add at the mm. bottom. We kind of... Even with the logistics, and I, I think whether they got into we want to be Amazon too and go into logistics as well as Amazon, yeah, I think uh, so. 
but to be fair, within what twelve months, eighteen yeah, months, yeah. they've completely reversed ferret as yeah. as is known. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and had a shake up of the management team. Uh, yeah, and, and they and, they, and they've walked away. I mean, you've got to look what's happening yodel at the moment. I mean, it's slightly a, a tangent, but you know, logistics is a very tough business. Uh, well, Royal Mail, you know. Um, yeah. So that's why clearly the shareholders were like, "What you're doing? You know, yeah. you're going as you say, a software company with very light on assets to suddenly a logistics business with." Very heavy on, and by the way, where's your experience in managing a logistics company? By the way, market's very good at telling management when they've got it wrong, right? <laughs> that's that's capitalism, very effective. Yes. I just wish you know they hadn't done that because it would have been a much nicer ride well, for us. But, ride. but as it happens, it allowed us opportunity to, to it, add. It, it did, it did yeah. give us opportunity, and it's it's worked out well, thank goodness. And and now it's our top position in strategic well, saying, So so we've been taking a few profits out of it recently, just we, to take yeah. that down a bit. We are, yeah. Right, so that takes us on to any other business uh, for this month. So for those of you that are new to the podcast, this is a little bit of time where we all get to have a little grumble about something that has wound us up um, through through the course of the month. Uh, David, I'll turn to you first. Thank you. So I was, I was accused of being too philosophical last month. Right, you say. So uh, I'm going back to type. Um, and so I've got so much to grumble about this month. Um, so honourable mention, spec savers. Actually, uh, Great Western always on the list, obviously. Yeah, evergreen. But Black Sheep Coffee. <laughs> Black Sheep Coffee. So I was meeting one of my new colleagues from Investec. I think it was last week. Their offices are walk around the block. So we decided we meet for coffee between the two offices, neutral territory <laughs> um, for, for a coffee. And what is this Black Sheep Coffee chain? I think they think they're high end. Um, there's they a hint. certainly do. They certainly do. Yeah. The price says that as well. The price <laughs> says that, definitely, yes. So I walked in, thought I haven't been to one of these before. I'll give it, give it a whirl, so to speak. So I saw these kind of, you know, these pads you get by the door. You're supposed to order. I ignored that. So I went to the counter with this young woman and I said, uh, she wanted a hot chocolate and uh, I wanted, I can't remember what I wanted, but coffee, whatever. And the guy said, uh, bear in mind, there were no customers in the shop and there were three people behind the counter, just for context. I said, um, can we order a coffee and a hot chocolate? He said, uh, no, we're too busy. Can you go to the pad, please, which is the far end of the shop? I said, well, can't I just, can't I just order from a human being, please? No, no, we're too busy. I've got an order of 20 coffees coming for Deliveroo. Right. <laughs> that's my problem, clearly. So, okay. So I hadn't met this person before. If that had been me on my own or with you two, um, I would have walked out at this. But I thought, no, that might look a little belligerent to a younger member of staff. So I went over to the pads. I thought, well, I've got someone here who can help me if I need help. So keyed in what we wanted. Couldn't find checkout anywhere. It was trying to offer me all sorts of stuff. Like flapjacks, which I didn't want, and upsell and um, bubble gum. That's May, you see, gluten free. Exactly. I couldn't go near gluten free, right? <laughs> so I thought this is just an age thing. So I got I got Tamiro. It said, "Can you can you help me out?" She went, "No, it doesn't work for us." So eventually, weirdly, it did allow us to check out. Our two of us, the brain, two brains together, we finally got there. I reckon we could have ordered five times by the time it took us to use this technology. <laughs> It, and then I found out it was £4.10 per cup. So not only more expensive than all the other chains, you, you have zero customer service. You've got the charm of a Trabant salesperson. So I stayed. I had the coffee. Overly expensive, right? The technology doesn't work. The staff are unfriendly. I'm never going back. Yeah. Maybe you should have ordered through Deliveroo because it sounds like they <laughs> prioritise those ones. You deliver it outside the shop, please. Or oh, they just get to it by machines. <laughs> that is very true. Well, I'll go to you next and then I, I will 
finish I'll give my little shorter than that. That one. <laughs> Sorry, he really I, came back to form this one, didn't he? <laughs> well, I had to make up for last month. Um, mine is one hour meetings. I think I think we need to break the shackles of of time and uh, stop just having just ask. because. But hang on, hang on. I thought we weren't being philosophical no, anymore. It's not, it's not philosophical. It's just just because an hour is a nice rounded number. It's not sixty minutes anyway. But why do we have to have meetings that always last now when they shouldn't be? I think people need to start giving a bit of thought as yeah. to how long a meeting should be and booking for that time. And if it's forty five minutes, it's forty five minutes. Twenty minutes, it's twenty minutes. Because otherwise, you're sitting and you're done off forty minutes, and somehow. That meeting just keeps going until that hour. Yeah. And so rare people shut it down and they're efficient with their time. So for me, start thinking about how long your meetings need to be. Start organising them appropriately. You are known as being quite antisocial though, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, you're quite yeah. fastidious. With, I know with our team meetings, you know, often, you know, we'll be having a nice chat about David's latest foray into a Scandi noir Netflix drama. <laughs> and and we'll all say, come on, I'm going to bring this to order. I'm busy man. <laughs> <laughs> Or miserable. Yes. Yes. Okay. I will, I will, I will finish this off. And uh, this is what I came up with on Saturday morning when I was sort of making my kids toast for, for breakfast. And um, look, the toast and the toaster people need to get together and decide on a size, ultimately, <laughs> because the bread's too big for the toaster or the toaster's too small for the bread. One or the other. One of these things is wrong. So I should be able to put my toast in and have every single bit of the bread toasted nicely. But instead, you either have to put it in sort of portrait size and you get the top bit that's not a portrait uh, sort of format and you, you don't really get the top bit of the bread or you sort of squash it in landscape sort of way and all of a sudden, because it's all crushed up, the top edge of your toast gets burnt and my kids are a bit fussy. If it's burnt, they won't want to eat it. So it just it's a waste of bread. It's really annoying and it seems like a really simple thing to fix. Just say like, Toast or bread is now going to be eight and a half centimetres by eight and a half centimetres. All the toaster people can make their toast slots that yeah, size. Yeah, that's how North Korea started. <laughs> you could, technically, you could. Well, mine's quite benign, to be fair. Could you maybe halve the size of your bread so it fits in? Maybe, but yeah, but then there's a problem, right? Because then when it pops up, it's not sticking out the top. So then I've got to turn it off at the wall and stick a knife in it because obviously I don't want to electrocute myself. You know, that, you know, just to cover myself there, don't stick a knife in a toaster <laughs> when it's on. Um, and then I've got to try and pick it out. And, you know, I'm a busy man on the Saturday morning when the kids both want breakfast and, you know, I'm meant to be meant to have done something the night before invariably that I'm now quickly trying to cover up the fact I haven't done. And they're first world problems, these Craig. They, they are, for, but that's what AOB's for, right? <laughs> we should yeah. just call it first world problems. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, a brief announcement before I get on to my usual thank yous is that uh, come uh, the March episode, two weeks after the release of the March episode, we're going to be starting a new venture, a uh, slightly new venture with um, The Sharp End, where we will have a quarterly 15-minute episode that will cover questions that we normally get asked from our client base and from our listeners. We're very conscious and want to try and bring you into the fold and want to answer questions that are most relevant to you. So if you do have any questions, please email at the Sharp sharp end, sharp with an E, um, at rathbones.com. And we'll be able to try and filter those questions down, distill them into some topics, and we'll cover them for 15 minutes to make sure we're addressing things that you want to hear about the most.
Usual thank you. So thank you very much, gents, for your time again. Thanks for joining us all. And we hope you join us again for the next episode of The Sharp End. If you didn't listen last time, please feel free to go back, listen again to those earlier episodes. Last month, Will, David and I discussed the outlook for 2024, how we're approaching year with plenty of challenges still ahead. We then discussed rate sensitive sectors like infrastructure and why we'd added exposure to them for the first time ever in the funds before finishing covering German optics company, Carl Zeiss Meditech. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to hit the subscribe and like button and also give us a review if you've got some time as well. And if you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbones contact, your financial advisor, or visit the website at www.rathbonesam.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.